it was so gripping to see all these tents and all these people. And the moment we walked in, uh, there was like 40, 50 people just immediately drew near to us, immediately welcoming us in this shelter. <laughs> the people, the, the, the illegals, if some would call them that, were... We're welcoming you to their to their home, so to speak, in their temporary to their place. their home, so to speak. And this was the shelters that wow. were made out of tents. And they were welcoming us and they were thanking us for being there. And uh, they were trying to offer us things. I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> we were just gripped by seeing that. Uh, so much for the criminals, you know, this yeah. whole narrative. We're talking religion and politics on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Challenging the mindset of the partisan evangelical church and asking the question, is God really a conservative Republican? And does God require his followers to be? Podcasting worldwide on the NPE network at npepodcast.com. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast with the nonpartisan evangelical himself, your host, Paul Swearingen. All right, welcome to the podcast, Nonpartisan Evangelical. Today, NPPodcast.com is the website. And today we're going to talk an issue that uh, gets a lot of discussion. And sometimes I don't feel like discussion from any real knowledge that anybody has to share. We just sort of have preset ideas, and that is immigration, dealing with immigrants in the country and dealing with immigrants in the church. And we have Pastor Alex Baez from Beta Church in Sacramento with us today, uh, 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 heavily a, a church that's attended by people of color and immigrants. And so we're going to learn a lot from Alex's uh, perspective and his wife, Liz, who, who uh, serves at the church with him. And so, Alex, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Paul. Uh, I'm excited to be a part of this and uh you know it's interesting because even in your introduction i was like whoa we're already processing things with our intro so it's gonna be good <laughs> <laughs> well I, I i figured jesus liked to push buttons every once in a while to to <laughs> to get to where we really were and so i like to do that a little bit too no it's good it's all good and i know you you do that as well and 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 we really do do this out of love but you as much as anybody i've known and we've known each other for a few years are, are, are somebody who has been trying to say to the evangelical church and particularly the white evangelical church for some time that, hey, these marginalized people really matter. And so tell me where your heart came for that and how that all came about. Well, um, it's interesting because as we were talking about the introduction, um, I grew up uh, in a mostly conservative uh, perspective, uh, evangelical home, my dad being a pastor, uh being in ministry we were all taught that you know republican right wing is christian <laughs> <laughs> they are one in the same right so so in our minds if jesus was here today when we were growing up it was you know he was going to be a right wing conservative you know <laughs> he would vote republican um uh, but what really really changed my paradigm was actually being involved and uh, living day to day with the immigrant population. And what I mean by that is uh, after going to Bible school um, and 
just recently had gotten married uh, in the denomination I was a part of. Um, I was uh, asked to pastor a church in the Fresno Valley. Um, so right around your corner. All right. <laughs> in a small town uh, named Orange Cove. Okay. Yes, um, know it well. Yeah. So where there's a lot of uh, orange fields and orchards and uh, most of the workers there, if not all, uh, are immigrants from Mexico. And um, so we had not really engaged uh, uh, that close with the immigrant population until we pastored that church. And uh, this was back in uh, 1995 um, when we started uh, pastoring that church, my wife and I, uh, we started to discover, you know, how um, really, for the most part, undocumented immigrants live and the reasons why they came. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, it, for them, it wasn't an issue of, you know, are they trying to break the law, uh, take advantage of this country and, you know, uh, do things uh, illegally and not at all. It, they are people just like you and I, but in circumstances that, you know, uh, are of survival. Of, are we going to be able to survive with extreme poverty in their nations, violence in their nations, uh, some political turmoil where it's not that they really wanted to leave their country. It's the fact that they felt they needed to, to survive and for their children to be able to have a better future. So, uh, which is a decision any other parent would make, right? If if, right. if the situation yeah. were reversed, we we would find a way to Mexico to take care of our kids, wouldn't we? Definitely, and especially when it comes to your future, your family. I know I would do anything for my kids, and uh, you know, you you're, we all think you know uh, ethically and morally, you know what we should what we should do, what we shouldn't do. But when it comes to survival, you know, you're not thinking in those terms anymore. You're thinking of how can I really help my children thrive and survive and have a better future and really even live. Uh, so we encountered so many stories that really helped tear down our paradigm of seeing uh, the undocumented immigrant as an illegal person, as somebody that's breaking the law, somebody that needs to be deported back. And another thing that we engaged just really quick um, is also the processes all of these people that we engage all of them want documents all of them want to be here legally they're not here because they want to take advantage of you know the system and they're here because they want to contribute they want and they do still mm -hmm. contribute but as undocumented it's, it's so frustrating because there are so many limitations so they have gotten into the process of, of becoming legalized and getting their documents, but each case is so different. And on top of that, our broken system, it, it doesn't uh, give allowance to any mistakes that could be made, uh, you know, a, a certain document that wasn't submitted the right way, where when these things occur, they save so much money and they give so much money or they pay so much money for the services that they need, the legal services to get their documents. Just one little mistake could throw them all the way back to the beginning of the, of, of the process. And so we've seen their frustration and we've seen how at times and many times it seems like an impossibility to be able to become documented uh, residents here in the United States. And it is a system that sadly everybody knows basically that it needs to be reformed, but nobody does anything. Right.
And I think a lot of that has to do with politics and, and maybe both sides yeah. of the aisle like it as a political issue. So that's why we don't get to a, a resolution. Definitely, definitely. And uh, so you can see how these people and, and on top of that, most of these people are God fearing. Mm. Uh, these aren't, you know, as the narrative has put it, criminals, <laughs> yeah. rapists, uh, the, uh, you know, bad people bad hombres. These are people that are humble people. For the most part, they have nothing, you know, they barely come with a shirt on their back coming over, um, where basically they are seeking to better their lives. Um, and to be honest with you, the statistics have, the statistics have shown that in their communities, there is more compliance to the law right. <laughs> than actual citizens here in the United right. States. Right. <laughs> They don't want to get sent back home. Yeah. Right. right. And, and, and most of them are God-fearing, and a good number of them are Christian. Even even Christian, what we would define Christian evangelical, somebody mm. that has placed their faith in Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Um, so most of these people cross over, and, you know, they come as Christians already. They come as God-fearing. Uh, you have uh, the majority of the people come this way. Even if they're Catholic faith, it, 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 it continues to... Uh, demand of them a a humility, a a, a submission, a compliance, and all of these virtues you know that Christianity gives. This is what they come already with. Hmm. Uh, when I was in college, I worked a lot of really crappy summer jobs to make a lot of money that were very hard work. And in that process, I ended up working with many illegal illegals who were willing to do that work on an ongoing basis. I was willing to do it for a summer to help me get back to school. Um, and I found every one of them to be hardworking and and many of them longed to be home with their family, but they knew there was no opportunity in right. Mexico for them. So they were here and, and some even could not go home to see their kids and their wives because once right. they went home, it would be difficult to get back. And and I think, is it fair to say, Alex, and, and I think some of this is we have proximity living in Central California because we see the value of the labor these people are providing where maybe Midwestern people or others don't get to see that as much. But I've always said, not only are they here because we need them, but in fact, they're here because we invited them or at very least we turned our head to let them come because we needed the labor. And they are very hardworking people. Yeah. They are not people that come to take advantage of. I've seen system. it in action. Yes. And uh, and they even contribute taxes. Yes. And not in anything really from it. Uh, and they come, they work hard and they work in jobs that the normal citizen would not want to work in. And uh, they fill these jobs and they do them really well. Uh, and so it, Thinking just, I mean, trying to understand that, you know, not wanting, you know, these people here in, in our country uh, really would make a huge impact in a negative way to our economy if they would all be deported back. Mm. Yeah, we'd so, have a hard time keeping our industries going. Definitely. And I think that it's it's across the board, how you said in the Central Valley, we engaged uh, basically farm workers uh, and field workers here in Sacramento in the capital. You know, we engage lower sector jobs uh, where uh, they work in hotels, they work in, um, you know, um, 
in uh, landscaping, they work in, uh, you know, cleaning homes and so forth. The jobs that, as I said, a normal citizen would not want. Hmm. So, and they work really hard at it and they do a good job at it. So I, I saw a meme yesterday on social media from a Christian friend of mine that said um, there were more than, I think it was 18,000 violent crimes committed by illegal immigrants last year. Uh, I, I looked up the statistics and that stati there was only about 16,000 of those crimes in America last year. So, I mean, the, it was more in the meme than actually had occurred in, in the country. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, and you're talking a little bit anecdotally here, but, but I mean, let's, is it fair to say that this idea that, that these are criminals and a major portion of crime that's occurring in the United States is coming from illegal immigrants to be an untrue statement that even our president is perpetuating? <laughs> Most definitely. It's, it's being around uh, this community for years, uh, you know, even by my own proximity and personal experience shows that no, these aren't people that, you know, came here to, to, to want to break laws and uh, do crime. Um, there is a very small percentage, definitely. Um, you know, you always find a bad apple, as they say, but the majority of them don't want to do that. And especially because they don't want to get caught. Yeah. They want to be under the radar. So they drive the speed limit. They do all that they can <laughs> to obey every single law. Um, and th there is a narrative that continues to marginalize and oppress them. Um, and this narrative continues to put them in a bad light, in uh, a perspective that criminalizes them. And it's, it's, it's very, very sad because that is not at all the, the reality of who they are. And I, and I think, in fact, keeping them in the shadows, as we're doing, even makes them vulnerable to crime rather than more likely right. to be criminals. Right, and you know, we've, we've tried to work with law enforcement actually here in our city. Uh, and uh, specifically, we've, we've had meetings with the sheriff of our county where we've talked about how uh, we can continue to, uh, or not continue to, but actually, actually establish a trust with law enforcement where um, uh, our, our undocumented immigrants won't feel threatened at all, but on the contrary, they would feel safe, mm -hmm. uh, where they could call the police knowing that, okay, I'm not going to be turned into, you know, uh, immigration, but I'm actually going to be helped if there's somebody that's trying to, you know, steal from me or somebody that's, you know, doing crime in my community or how so many things are uh, go unreported. Uh, where there is, you know, sexual abuse and uh, so forth, that really in these communities, they have to keep it silent because there's a fear of it being reported to immigration. So working with law enforcement, more and more they are engaging these communities um, in a friendly way to show them that they are here to uh, make them feel safe. Um, but we're still a long ways to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and that's the point of sanctuary cities too, right? Which are, which are, are so so wholly maligned. But the point is, if you don't protect these people from being deported, they're not going to report crime. They don't help police uh, right. give information, and and so the sanctuary city idea that everybody seems so against is just a misunderstanding of of the purpose of it in the first place. And that's exactly the purpose of the yeah. sanctuary cities where we are trying to keep all our communities safe, you know, from the suburbs to the urban 
context to, you know, all the communities we're trying to keep safe. So when we talk about our very large undocumented community, um, they are a part of our whole. They are an important part of our whole that we need to keep safe too. Um, and also find solutions. I don't know, I gotta, I'm always gonna go back to this. <laughs> solutions to our laws, our immigration laws, because we do need them here. They are contributors. And uh, not only that, they are a blessing. Many of them are our, from you know the perspective of Christianity, they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right. So, so tell me how you see that biblically. You're a pastor. You want your people in your church to obey laws. And so I hear it from people all the time. And Jeff Sessions, our old attorney general, quoted Romans to say, if you violate the law, you... You pay the penalty, and, and so how do you square this biblically with being followers of the law and obedient to our government and all of those things in the midst of all this? Um, <laughs> I think there needs to be a balance. Um, definitely, we don't seek to break laws. That's not what we're trying to do as at all as Christians, especially. Um, we don't seek to break laws. Uh, but yet, what supersedes all law that is, you know, the laws that we live in the land, what has to supersede it is the scripture, is the Bible. And the Bible teaches us over anything to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, our souls, and our minds, and love our neighbors as ourselves. And uh, how are we loving our neighbor? Jesus specifically taught through the gospels who our neighbor is. Mm -hmm. And if you want to personify the neighbor in our days now, it is the immigrant, it is the marginalized, it is the oppressed. And so the good, look, the good Samaritan would be the illegal immigrant of that day. Exactly. There, there is a, a, a specific example of the Lord saying, OK, these are the laws that we have lived by. Now, I'm going to challenge these laws by showing you what what heaven looks like, hmm. you know, the priorities of heaven, the priorities of the kingdom of God and the priorities of the kingdom of God is God is always giving value to the marginalized and the oppressed. And so when we look at that biblically, uh, there are laws in our land that are unjust, and we have to accept that. Uh, and one of the, the most unjust laws, because it is what it is in our nation. Our nation has struggled with racism for so long, since the beginning, since its inception. <laughs> um, and uh, we've struggled with racism so long that our laws always tend to, for the most part, tend to criminalize and oppress people of color. And we're seeing that right up front with the immigrant. Yeah. And I, I guess I just think if our heart would change toward this whole thing, the solutions would follow. You know, and, and if our, if we're hard hearted toward it, that's why it gets difficult to get get things get things accomplished. So just I think it's a hard issue to begin with. And, and, and I guess I think America is that place where we're like, hey, we're going to bend over backward to be welcoming to people because we were welcomed at some point here. And that's what makes us a great country is being good people. And the second we stop being good people, we're not going to be a great country anymore. Right. And I think that that's, that's the whole uh, gist of our country. Um, we are a country of, you know, immigrants. Uh, generationally, we have been. And uh, because biblically, we welcome the immigrant. We welcome the stranger. 
Uh, and then we talk about, well, there's a legal way, and a, you know, well, the Bible specifically talks about how we should treat um, the foreigner, how we yeah. should treat, treat the immigrant unconditionally. We need to welcome them. We need to love them as Christians. And we need to find ways to be able to reflect that also in the laws that are in place in our lands. How can we help in the process of, of bringing reform to specific laws that continue to oppress and marginalize people? Yeah, and I think the, the Bible talks about us humbling ourselves and pray and seek his face and, and then he'll heal our land. So I, I think a humbling around the issue could help. We're talking with Alex Baez, uh, pastor of Vita Church in Sacramento. Um, and I, I think in that hum humbling is a little bit of some of the problems that's driving people here in the first place. We, we kind of had, we're participants in that. And we have to own a little bit that, that we caused to some degree, some of the conditions that are driving people here in the first place. Uh, well, yes, definitely. Yeah. When you're looking at most of, most of the, um, the people that are coming over from Latin America, uh, we have been uh, we have been present in their nation, <laughs> causing you know specific damage, and uh, and because of that, we're finding you know many of them have to um, out of necessity, out of survival, leave their countries to be able to find you know a, a way to survive for them and their and their families. Yet we've caused many times the conditions that are in, that are going on in the in their nations, like El Salvador. You know, we look at that what's going on, um, uh, specifically even back from the '80s and so forth, uh, from their civil war. I mean, there's just so much that we were involved in that you know basically we shouldn't have been involved in. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of been our one to around the world. So, all right, let's talk about the border. I know you've been down there recently. Um, so talk about uh, the conditions down there. And I, I guess to start with, what is the responsibility of a government of a nation uh, about its borders? And, you know, how do you see from your perspective what we should be doing on the southern border of the United States? Um. In the first place, constitutionally, an asylum seeker that comes over, he he has the right, he or she, they have the right uh, to a hearing, um, you know, so that way it, they could examine to see if this person could actually get asylum uh, here in the United States. So, the well, let me stop you real quickly there. I think that's a really important point because when you say constitutionally, that doesn't mean some king has handed down this rule that we all have to abide. That means we as a people determined right. along the line that this was important to us. We, When somebody comes here seeking asylum, we're going to at least give them the chance to prove that they deserve asylum. And if, and if they are truly fleeing something that's life-threatening, we're going to find a way to accommodate them to come. Right. And I think that uh, the attitude that we have shown toward asylum seekers has not been seeking a way to accommodate. <laughs> <It's> uh, <laughs> and more specifically, when we're separating families, I think the zero tolerance policy is very inhumane. So did you very see that happening? Uh, see that happening personally? See, yeah, when you were down at the border, could you see children separated from families? Um, actually, I was 
just this last month, uh, I was down there at the border, uh, present in one of the hearings uh, for a group of asylum seekers. And one of the mothers was asking for her daughter, a six-year-old daughter that was separated from her. Wow. Uh, the difficulty was um, the lawyer was demanding, uh, the public defender was demanding uh, the government to tell her where her daughter is because the separating of the families, basically they lose them. I mean, it's right up front. They cannot find them. The The parents have no idea where their children are. Oh. And many times they're taken uh, to a detention center way across the country and you have, they don't know where. Uh, so this, this is killing me. I can't imagine having my six-year-old child disappear somewhere in a foreign land and the government, so and the people that took him not know where he is. And it's, it's something when you're watching it, like either you're watching it on TV or you're seeing it online or so forth. Um, but when you're actually present and you could feel the, the, the pain that the mother was going through and, uh, you know, she's walking up to the judge, uh, uh, you know, basically in chains, um, cuffed uh, as a criminal. Um, and as she's cuffed as a criminal before the judge in her jumpsuit, um, she's asking, at, you know, they're, they're going through the process of, you know, do you understand these, you know, your rights and so forth and so on, right? Uh, which basically there isn't any for the asylum seekers. Um, but, you know, they had to say their, their spiel. Um, but when they're doing that, she's asking the judge, where is my daughter uh, that was taken from me? Oh, uh, that gripped my heart so much. Um, it, 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 it's just so incomprehensible. You just cannot comprehend. You know, I, I have my kids and yeah. I just cannot I could not even imagine, you know, my kids. And I have specifically I have a. You know, I have a 20, 20, 20 year old, 18 year old, but I have an 11 year old right now. Yeah. And I could not even imagine my 11 year old being stripped from me and I not knowing at all where he's at. Uh, and so I know more and more they're working on, you know, being able to reunite. But that's just right now has become such an impossibility. So yeah, I want to talk a little bit more about the conditions. But first, just what do you do at the border? What what drives you to go down there? And what are the things you're, you're trying to accomplish being down at the border? It's a good question. Um, I've been asked that a lot. It's like, why you have your church up here? You're doing what you're doing up here. <laughs> why do you go to the border? Um, last year, or actually the, at the end of 2018, uh, when we had started hearing news about the caravan and so forth, um, there's was this narrative that was coming out of you know most of these people are MS-13 gangs and you know these are criminals, these are bad people. Uh, Firsthand, I saw here in the U.S. the uh, immigrants that I was working with, they were not like that. Um, so I thought, okay, how can we at least, first of all, shed light and change this narrative, help people understand, humanize these people mm -hmm. and help them understand why they would leave their country, trek all the way, thousands of miles uh, that could become a one-way trip for them. They could die on the road and uh, but why would they sacrifice so much to do this and bring children to and bring their families? So I felt um, in my heart such a conviction to shed light on this, to really uh, establish a counter narrative of what's been what's what was being said. One thing. But second, because my faith demands it. Mm -hmm. Matthew chapter 25 
talks about because I have done it to the foreigner, because I have done it to the immigrant. I'm doing it to Jesus. How I'm treating those that were coming is the way I treat Jesus. That's the way the Christian needs to see this. And that's the problem that we have is that we have such an individualistic Christianity in our country that we, you know, it doesn't demand of us to look at an asylum seeker as Jesus. So mm. that moved me, not just because of the counter narrative, but secondly, because this is what my faith demands of me. What am I doing to uh, help these asylum seekers? So when the, when the first caravan came, uh, I traveled down there with a group of people with the, one of the organizations, We Care, uh, and we went to, um, we visited a large shelter of 6,000 asylum seekers in a shelter, tent city. Um, you know, they built up a triage and everything for them, even a small school for the children. It was, it was neat to see how everything happened, but it was so gripping to see all these tents and all these people. And the moment we walked in, uh, there was like 40, 50 people just immediately drew near to us, immediately welcoming us in this shelter. <laughs> the people, the, the, the illegals, if some would call them that, were, were welcoming you to their, to their home, so to speak, in their temporary place. To their place. home, so to speak. And this was the shelters that wow. were made of tents. And they were welcoming us and they were thanking us for being there. And uh, they were trying to offer us things. I mean, it was crazy. <laughs> we were just gripped by seeing that. Uh, so much for the criminals, you know, this yeah. whole narrative. Um, I was even told by one pastor uh, uh, before I came down the first trip, you better be careful. That's really dangerous. And that's, you know, <laughs> on the contrary, when we walk over there, they made me feel welcome. Wow. They made me feel accepted in, amongst them. And uh, and we prayed with them. It was interesting, too, because not only were we, you know, we were going in there, we're going to pray for them, we're going to help them. We're, well, they encouraged us in the middle of their affliction. They're, they were comforted and they comforted us to see what was going on. Um, and at the same time, you know, we also saw how we can bring supplies to them and help them out. Um, but it was real gripping to see and be there and know what was happening and who they are, why they came. Um, we were so gripped by their stories. And the majority of them in that that time, that shelter, were unattended minors. There were kids between the ages 13 to 17, tons of kids, hundreds of kids that were not gang members, were not. These are vulnerable kids that their parents sent because they were being um, persecuted either if it's Nicaragua by the government, uh, if it's Honduras by the gangs that really wanted to recruit them, were threatening their lives of their parents, if they weren't a part of the gangs. Uh, it, it, it was just a lot of the things that, that were going on in their countries was the reasons why they were fleeing. And, uh, and these kids were there, and all he could do is just hang out with them, hug them, love on them. And in particular, there was one kid a 15-year-old kid. I, I looked at him as like one of my sons, one of my teenage boys. He stuck with me the whole time that we went through the whole uh, uh, shelter, just like one of my kids. And he just hung out with me, hung out with me, hung out with me all the way till the end. It was so hard to say bye to him. Mm. I, you know, I had to leave and he just, he hugged me 
And he says, don't forget about me. And I said, are you kidding me? I'm never going to forget about you. And I'm never going to forget about any of you. You all have won my heart. And not only have you won my heart, you won my devotion and dedication to helping asylum seekers as much as I can. Mm -hmm. It's the reason why I travel down there. Now, just to give you a real quick um, uh, background of what's happening now, that shelter couldn't last very long um, because the money that was being pumped into it ran out. So they had to divide them all over the city of Tijuana in different smaller shelters that needed need supplies desperately and they need to be dignified. In other words, they're just under tents, no bathrooms, no nothing. It's terrible. So what we've begun to do is work with other, other organizations to create a network of the shelters to be able to resource each one of them and see what they need. And we've already started helping out with one of the shelters as a pilot shelter to construct rooms, small rooms for the asylum seekers that arrive. So there's so much work to do. Mm. Definitely, it's nonstop. It's going to be probably last forever. But what are we really doing as Christians when we talk about how we are Christians and how we love the Lord, yet we don't show that in our action and in our, our, in our works. So We Care is the organization, and I know you were telling me that it's uh, it's life-changing to go down there, so you would encourage others to, to go with this organization oh, or somebody else? Definitely. Um, you know, we've gone down with Road Relief, too. Road Relief has made some trips down there uh, to be able to, again, shed some light on what's happening and what's going on. Um, I've also... Um, uh, gone down there with Faith in Action. Faith in Action is a national um, organization too. Faith in Action does a lot of work also at the border. Um, so I've gone down. I just this last trip that I made was uh, actually the other side of the other border in um, uh, Juarez, Juarez and uh, El Paso and Las Cruces, mm -hmm. New Mexico, that area. So, um, you know, we got to see what was going on down there. We didn't go across, but we think we're doing work on this side. But um, over here in California, you know, in our southern border is where I've mostly been uh, focused more on and the Tijuana side, too, and uh, seeing how we can resource the shelters. So there are different organizations that are doing work. Um, AOL is another one, Al Otro Lado. Um, AOL, what they do is they do... Um, orientations uh legal orientations for the asylum seekers and they they need a lot of help uh they need a lot of volunteers they need a lot of support especially if uh you know somebody is studying law and immigration law or is a lawyer an immigrant for immigration um it would be huge uh, to look into aol al otro lado um which they need support in a big big way not a there's a shortage of public defenders that want that job i would assume Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need a lot of that even in our side. Yeah. A lot of public defenders. Hi, everybody. Let me take a quick break from this discussion with Alex Viaz. Uh, discussing the border and immigration, which I think are really important topics for us to look into. And let me tell you about the exciting project we have going on now. My novel, when uh, Joseph Comes to Town, When the Religious Right Goes Religiously Wrong, is coming out in audio, and I'm doing it in an audiobook series form. We're releasing segments at a time, and you can hear it through our nonpartisan evangelical Patreon page, and I want you to join right now. Our NPE community is a special place where people who want to 
give a little financial support to help. It starts at $5.99 a month to help us buy the equipment we need to market our product and just to, to let me be free to be out and give this message to the world that you don't have to buy into the right-wing Christianity to be good with God. And to tell the rest of the world, God is not mad at you and he doesn't require this of you either. And if you think that message is important, I want you to join my Patreon community. If you go to my website, npepodcast.com, that's nonpartisan evangelical, npepodcast.com. In the upper right-hand corner, there's a Patreon button. Click on that and it'll take you to the page. And for just $5.99 a month, you'll be able to access the audiobook series. You'll be able to hear the book in audio as it comes out in segments. And then I do something pretty cool, just a special commentary that you can only hear on the Patreon page where I tell you sort of why I wrote the book as I did and and which of these were real experiences that played into this and what does that look like. So I hope you really enjoy it. Join us on the Patreon page. Again, it's npepodcast.com. Click that Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner and have access to all the cool Patreon stuff. You'll even hear my wife join in from time to time in the conversation. So I want you to join us, npepodcast.com. Click the Patreon button and join our Patreon community for the nonpartisan evangelical. Now, back to the podcast with Pastor Alex Vias. In that, did you ever run into anybody that, I'm trying to think of what the narrative is, that that people are bringing other people's kids here to try to try to use the kids to get into the country for nefarious reasons? Did you experience that at all? I heard about that from our narrative, our side. I had never experienced that. I'm going to be straight up. I had never seen that, never experienced it. Every family that I met was actually family. Uh, it was their kids. Um, I, I'm not saying, I don't know anything about it. I don't know if that was actually a story that happened or maybe a few people did that, but I know the majority of the people are families that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I'll give you an example. One of um, the families that we encountered in that shelter, the mom was showing us her wound. She had a stab wound in her stomach. Oh. They were treating the stab wound. Um, and the reason why was because, and she, she was telling us there, she says, see, those are my kids. She had four teenage boys, uh, ranging from 13 to 18, 13 to 18. She has four teenage boys. And uh, she said, there's a gang, that one of the, you know, the well-known gangs in our city wanted to recruit them. And uh, they didn't want to be a part of the gangs. They're good kids and they're Christian kids. We're Christian people. We, we love God and we go to church and, but they threatened uh, that they would hurt us if they wouldn't be a part of the gang. And they ended up doing that. They found the mom, they stabbed her. Um, and so, so the best thing that they could do was flee, get out. Um, and that's what they did. And she came and uh, she was a part of that, you know, the uh, caravan that came and she was in that shelter. We met her, we met her kids. We brought them all along together. We prayed for them. Uh, it was interesting because in that encounter, as we prayed for them, you know, she prayed for us, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's just incredible. Uh, their faith is amazing. Many of them, it's because of their faith. They could have, they could make it all the way, but all they want is a better future, better yeah. future. She wanted She says, I just want a better future for my kids. I don't want to go back to Honduras and have to deal and my kids have to deal with us being persecuted and, and harmed and maybe even killed for them to be a part of 
you know, a gang. So, and most, sadly, most of these cases are turned away and they are deported back. And I assume she would be in real life danger if she were sent back. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Did, was she aware that what she was doing was, and I'll use my air quote fingers here, what, what she was doing was illegal? Did she have an awareness of that? I think most of them, because from what they've heard, the law of them being able to turn themselves in, that's why many of them cross over and then they turn themselves in and seek, seeking asylum. So it's like, okay, we're obeying the law here. Yes, we did cross over, but we crossed over and we're turning ourselves in so that we can tell you we're seeking asylum. They're not trying to sneak in and trying to, you know, uh, uh, find a way of not being seen. They just cross over and they turn themselves in because their belief is they are going to be heard, that their story is going to be convincing enough for them to be able to be given asylum. Hmm. Sadly, that is not the case. I think, and so I love you giving us that perspective and, and kind of a view, because I think you, you said humanizer. I would say if we can put skin on people, all of a sudden our stories start to change. So I think that's really valuable. And and so I do business coaching as, as part of my, my life's work and was working with a, a, a young executive woman just yesterday. And her story is her father came here illegally, um, got amnesty in the Reagan administration, was able to become a citizen. And now here's a young woman that has a master's degree, is an executive in a, in a really significant organization here in Fresno where, where I live. And I think those are the stories we ought to focus on a little bit as well. And even, even the DACA dreamers who are running businesses, paying taxes, employing citizens, marrying American women, you know, the, these are, are good people. These are not gang members destroying our country, but are, but are us, right? Right. And even in our congregation, we have DACAs in our congregation. Um, and, uh, you know, several of them own businesses. And, you know, they pay their taxes. They, they do their best with what they do. And um, what's so hard about the removal of DACA is the fact that they're in the system. You know, their names are there. Uh, and I think it's, that, again, unjust laws, that if we don't do something about it, uh, these people basically have lived under the threat of being deported, but they've lived all their lives here, basically, and they've built their futures here. They've built their homes, they've built their businesses, uh, their kids are growing up here, it, 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 they've contributed so much. There's no way they can be displaced and removed and go back to a country they basically don't know about. and. Uh, basically did not grow up in and it's a whole different thing for them and there has to be uh, a lot of fear for them in that a lot there's a lot of fear and especially right now that daca was removed they feel vulnerable uh at least with daca they felt that they were protected uh that hey you know there's something is happening to work toward uh the legalization or the documentation that they need but now that that's removed uh basically they feel very vulnerable and, if, and from what we're hearing, again, from the government, the administration, is the fact that even they are um, basically vulnerable to be deported also. So, yeah. Well, I think we're waiting for a court case to come down uh, that if it goes the way it seems, then they can start deporting people out that have been here their whole lives, as you said. And I think the thing people don't realize is, is for that dreamer, which in case anybody doesn't know what that means, that's somebody who was brought here as a young child illegally and, and basically have lived their whole lives in the United States. 
there is no easy path for them to become citizens. There, there's no amount of yes. money they can spend. There's right. no easy path for, for that to happen. Right. I, I mean, not even, and when I say easy, I mean viable. I, my, my understanding of it now right. is they would have to go back to Mexico uh, right. if they're from Mexico uh, or El Salvador or Honduras, whatever country they're from. And, and it would be 10 years before they would have a chance to come back. And then the chance is very, very slim. And once again, we're dealing with what we would call unjust laws. Yeah, uh, That is just, it, it, that's very unjust. Wow. Uh, specifically with people that have built their lives here already. And um, they're, they're woven already within the fabric of our country. And they are Americans. They really are. Um, it, the way they contribute, the way they're raising their children, the way, uh, just how important they are to our society. So just removing so many of them, it, it's unheard of. It's just something that I, it's un, unimaginable, basically. So, so I'm hoping and praying things change. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I know, I know some of those, some of those people as well who are saying is today the day that right. somebody pulls up to my door and I'm, and I'm taken away, uh, snatched away as the, as the right. Bible says. And, and many of them are very successful. Yeah. You know, they're successful. They went to school, college, college degrees, own their businesses. We see that right here in our own congregation and, uh, and they're afraid, you know, they're basically live in constant fear that they could lose everything that they've had, they've built here. Um, and it's been a great, it's been a great ride for them and what they've done and, uh, and how they continue to contribute to our country and their kids have such a great future because of it. Let me ask you about this and I'll let you answer the way where you feel is appropriate. But I, I, I know having known each other, I, I know that this has been a little bit painful for you being the pastor of a, of a, a significantly migrant and, and a church of people of color to deal with some of our less evangelical brothers and, and sisters has, I think it's caused you a little bit, a bit of pain. Is that fair to say? Uh, definitely. Um, we've, it, it's been a difficult experience. Uh, both my wife and I um, have had to endure um, just a lot of, uh, from ridicule to, uh, not only that, but to basically um, people beginning to cut us out from things. Um, isolation. Isolation has been one of the biggest uh, problems that we've had. Uh, being isolated has been very difficult um, because we were, we're, we were a part of, you know, the evangelical circles and the churches here, especially in our area. Um, and it's not to say that we don't have relationship with them, but it's just the dynamic has changed completely. Mm ever since the elections, basically. Um, of 2016? The 2016 elections, yeah. yes. And and how that has affected our community, it's, it's, it's tough. Um, even our church, like my wife and I, we have felt very isolated from uh, the greater, you know, evangelical church here in our area and from the nation that uh, in many ways they feel betrayed. Uh, by their brothers and sisters, specifically white brothers and sisters in Christ, they feel betrayed. Um, so it's it's been a difficult journey. It's been a very difficult process um, where we've had to navigate through it all. Yeah. But God has been our strength. God has been 
our church's strength and um, we see how resilient they are very resilient and uh, and they're willing to stand for their convictions and who god has called them to be and again it's not like they want to be undocumented they want to be illegal they really really are seeking ways but it's so hard and now even more so with the administration that we have it just makes it even harder um, to be able to uh get on the right track for documents and what they need well and i appreciate i can hear you sort of choosing your words in there and and you know neither of us want to be dishonoring of people and and i i try to tell people all the time you know you can make the choice you want to make in your voting for president or governor or anybody else. Uh, but for one, when you start saying only one party, Christians can only vote for one party. Right. I know that's a violation of the Bible for sure. Right. But I, I I want people, instead of becoming defensive when they hear something like what you just shared, I think we're supposed to hear people's pain and and be able to, to hear somebody say, and, and our, our brothers and sisters, from Latin American countries and or Latin American descent to say, hey, your unabashed support of anything right wing seems a little bit painful for us, if not flat out a, a rejection of who we are as human beings. And, and I think that's important for, if I can just say, white evangelical Christians to hear. And, you know, that that has been our struggle. Right. Uh, our struggle has been um, to be seen to be heard basically hear us i'm not even asking for you to change how you how you think but maybe if you would hear and learn and just be able to uh, have some proximity get close to those that are in hurt and pain those that are hurting and are in pain get close listen hear it i think that just doing that to start out with begins to help us tear down those structures that continue to divide us and separate us. Um, and then when we begin to hear and understand, I, that's how it started with me. I'd begun to hear and understand their pain. I never fully understood it. When I was with them, I began to understand it. And being with them has changed a lot of my perspective and has made me see Christ through a whole different paradigm from the margins, not from the center. Hmm. And I think that when, as evangelicals, we have seen things from an, a religious center, but not from the margins. And so we tend to look at people at the margins as people that um, basically have, uh, you know, have just made bad choices to be in that, in the yeah. circumstances that they're in. When act, in actuality, a lot of what we have done is we've caused them to be in those <laughs> margins. And uh, <laughs> yeah. what, what we have chosen has caused oppression in uh, those that are marg- marginalized. And so being able to begin to see the perspective from the margins, then you're looking at something completely different and it helps you to understand the pain of others. And it's it helps us to not be so selfish and self-absorbed and religious, self-righteous and so forth, where we begin to see through the eyes of Christ, the hurt and the pain of others. Yeah. And and so that has been something very big for us that through this process, we have been trying to help people. That's the counter narrative, trying to help people understand and humanizing, hey, these people are here because of their pain, because of what they're going through. They're not here because of what the narrative is telling us. They are here because they are in pain. So as a Christian, 
what does our faith advise us? What does our faith demand of us? Our faith demands of us to love our neighbor, to love the immigrant, uh, to welcome them, to love them as we love ourselves, to love them as we love those around us. How are we doing that? And, yeah. Wow. And so, I think it just softens our heart just to hear people's story. And and uh, and so being soft-hearted is a big part of it because Jesus didn't call us to be American Christians. He, he called us to right. be Christians of the kingdom and right. and the rest of the stuff come into line with that. I, I was going to finish with this. Um, you talked about Matthew 25. And so I, I would love to just read a little portion of that. And then you, you kind of share what that means to you in the context of this conversation. But um, and so I'm kind of coming into the middle of the story here, but in, in verse 39 of Matthew 25, it says, when did, when did we see you sick or in prison or, and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So what does that passage mean to you to share to our audience here today? I think we need to make a distinction between charity and lifestyle. Um, what we have done in um, basically compartmentalizing that scripture is to look at it as a compassion ministry. Hmm. So and our churches have even had structures of compassion ministry and then discipleship and so forth and so on. I go serve food on Thanksgiving and I've, I've accomplished right. that verse. Yeah. Definitely. And, uh, or I've gone to Africa or I've gone, I've done missions trips. And so we, we see this charity mindset that still doesn't, uh, you know, change who we are. Uh, and there's many people that do their mission work, but when they come back, you know, they still think the same way. They still, their lifestyle is the same. And when I look at this portion, I don't look at this portion as, uh, you know, compartmentalizing it as a part of my Christianity. I look at it as Christianity, as life, our lifestyle, because on that day, we're going to be judged on this. And what Jesus was trying to say is, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is the lifestyle of the kingdom. This isn't a compassion ministry. It isn't like you're saying uh, on a Thanksgiving day or a backpack event that we're doing. Talking to one pastor, he had told me that. You look at the backpack event we're doing to the undocumented immigrants in our community. I was like, yeah, but how? What, what are you doing to truly love them, to value them, to make them feel that they are welcome? What are you really doing? You know, it's one thing to give them a backpack, and it's another thing to actually uh, stand with them in solidarity. How are you doing that? And I think that that's where many of them, they're thankful, but they know that there's a separation. And how can we close that gap? The way to close that gap is to look at the scripture as lifestyle. This is our faith, and this is what our faith demands of us. Our faith demands of us to welcome the stranger. Our faith demands us to visit and minister to those that are in prison. Our faith demands, this is a list 
of those that are being oppressed and how the kingdom of God puts value and priority to them. And how are we responding in that manner? Wow, that's a good word. And so let this discussion today, don't throw up your defenses, allow it to start to stir in your heart. Is there a, a greater life to the full that God has for me? Is there something greater that Jesus demonstrated in, in saying your neighbor is that person you don't think worthy of God's mm. favor? That is actually who your neighbor is and how you treat that person uh, is, is how you prove your devotion to God above all other things. And, and when we start to think about that, I think that changes the way we think. Right. Totally. And if, and if uh, people are concerned about the government being involved in these things, welfare and these programs and oh, yeah. these kind of things, then, then let's do something to change it through our churches and our communities and our things. And then maybe the government won't have to jump in there. But until then, I say, let our heart be towards taking care of the problem first, and then let's worry about how we work through the logistics of it. Right. And uh, well, that's another conversation. But... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to open a whole nother can of worms as we're about to wrap up. <laughs> I know. I know. It, I, it's, I, a, it's a hard issue for me. Yeah. Definitely. And, and I, I'm with you where I think that when you hear so many people defending a perspective or a point of view of, you know, the government shouldn't be doing that. Why is the government helping out? Well, that only reflects our hearts mm -hmm. in the way we think about those that are vulnerable. And uh, because if we don't want the government to do it, specifically what we're saying is I don't want my money going there. Right. Uh, and so when the kingdom of God puts priority to those that are vulnerable. Yeah. And uh, and this is one thing that I, you know, uh, told our church, even this past Sunday, um, we were sharing about, you know, the marginalized. And I said, you know, every time Jesus would walk into any room and in every, any place in the gospels, he would look for the person that's the most vulnerable. The most vulnerable was his priority. That's why he always stated, you know, the last will become first and the first will become last. The most vulnerable for him is always the one that becomes first priority. Mm. And how are we reflecting that? You know, on the contrary, we seek the famous, the famous, and the powerful, and the rich. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, we really turn that on its head. All right, I got to let you go, Alex. I know you've got things to do, and and so just so appreciate you giving us a view of something that many of us haven't been able to see ourselves, and and so encouraging to, uh, us to see ourselves in that. Thanks, Paul. I had a good time. Thanks for listening to this podcast and allowing it to challenge your hearts. Our goal in the nonpartisan evangelical is to challenge mindsets, gather people into community, and move people to action. So let this podcast challenge you, draw you around people who will sort of share these ideas of maybe there's another way to look at some of these things, and then move you to action to see things changed. NPEpodcast.com is the website. Tell somebody about it. Share it on social media. Tell it to everybody it's great. And if you want to help us out a little bit financially, click that Patreon button on the mpepodcast.com website and join our Patreon community where you can access all kinds of cool stuff, including my novel, Joseph Comes to Town, in audio form. Blessings on your household. Blessings on you. I want you to know God is not mad at you, and neither am I. 
Thanks for joining us on the nonpartisan evangelical and NPE podcast.com.